Recent court rulings show how the Republican legislature's half efforts are creating constitutional issues with the laws they pass. A PAC supporting Cameron finally releases some pretty good attack ads uh, that message well where Andy is vulnerable, but then they make a rookie mistake in one of them. And then finally, a Courier Journal opinion piece decrying COVID disinformation spreads, well, you guessed it, COVID disinformation. We'll have all that and more today on the Andrew Cooper Ryder Show. But first, make sure you like, comment, share, subscribe, spread the word, and tell others to check us out. It's incredibly important that you do. Help spread the word. And without further ado, let's dig into it. All right. So in this past 2023 session, the Republican legislature uh, passed a bill called Senate Bill 7. What Senate Bill 7 did is it would stop the teachers unions from being able to collect union dues directly out of teachers' paychecks. Basically, what they were saying was, is that... um, you know, these teachers unions that get very involved in politics and what we're doing is they're using taxpayer funded entities like the HR department at schools to help collect up their dues. And because of that, it's wrong. And it appears that taxpayer funds are going towards uh, the lobbying efforts of the teachers. So therefore we could no longer collect up dues directly from the paychecks, but instead uh, it had to be voluntary dues collecting that required the teachers to actually write a check or pay them and so on and so forth. And, you know, obviously, um, you know, the teachers unions obviously are heavily politically involved. Now, the reason why Senate Bill 7 has some issues here is because it didn't stop all other public sector unions from using the same mechanism to collect up their dues. Now the root claim that's, that's how this bill is being claimed is unconstitutional. Now I understand that some unions are typically better for conservatives while others are not, i.e. police unions now versus teachers unions, of course, are not as good for conservatives. However, the lack of principles and being unwilling to go full Monty on an issue at hand is what's causing problems. Because no public sector union should be able to use taxpayer funds to collect up dues and taxes. In fact, the idea of public sector unions themselves uh, and their existence is certainly debatable. Now, of course, these unions or associations, as sometimes they're called, could be helpful for providing insurance or legal representation to its members should they get into some problems. But it gets a bit iffy when they now come over to the pay working conditions because now you're having to get involved in politics. It requires you to in a way other unions don't require you to get involved in politics in order to accomplish your goals. Now follow me here in in, in my explanation. In no other type of union is the union able to influence and help hire the people they'll be doing contract negotiations with or working conditions with, or maybe not contracts with the employees. You know, at some places they do contract negotiations where it says in private sector, where it says when you hire somebody, they are put into this contract that the unions negotiated. In this case, I'm talking about contract negotiations. Each teacher's under a contract. Each teacher has a working condition, obviously, and these unions can advocate for different things. And so when they're sitting down, they're talking to these people and, and representing their union members, in this case, the teachers, for an example, 
they are sitting across from people who are elected and specifically in teacher situations they are sitting across from the school board. That is who they're negotiating with. And, and in the private sector, the unions don't, aren't sitting across from and negotiating with people they've helped hire. And that definitely creates some, in, some, some problems uh, about what kind of deal are you getting? Because when you see a private sector union sitting down with a private company and they're negotiating out their labor, and, and uh, honestly, it doesn't matter really as much here what you think about unions, should they exist or not? Um, you know, one argument against unions existing in the private sector is that it's actually illegal for private companies to behave in the same way that private sector unions do. What I mean by that is, is workers can come together and collectively bargain. But if employers in the same industry come together to collectively bargain with employees, that would be considered illegal. That would be an, a monopoly. And so, you know, that that's an argument of saying, look, it's not very fair to um, say that workers can do this, but employers can't as far as gathering together. Um, but that's just one thought about it. That's one thought I've heard. It, it doesn't matter what you think about public sector unions or private sector unions. Generally speaking, um, you know, workers coming together voluntarily to collectively argue for their pay is a fine thing to do. And I'm okay with that. It's on the other side where, like I said, employers aren't able to do the same thing. And now if you're a company like we just saw with UPS, you could be in a situation where, you know, you're having to raise your weights, pricing you out of the business because your union contract came up at a different time than other people's union contracts did. And you can't band together with all the other shippers and say, this is the contract we're going to be offering our employees. So that way, none of us go out of business. Um, instead, you have to negotiate there. You've got to raise your prices to offset the costs you now have, and then you get priced out of the business. But anyways, in private negotiations with unions, at least somebody is there. So you're sitting across from people who are there to represent the best interest of the companies. And then the unions are representing the interests of the workers. But in this case, when you have the unions helping hire, quote unquote, hire, elect the people they will be negotiating with, well, who's representing the quote unquote owners of the company, or in this case, the taxpayers, us, the taxpayers, it isn't, you know, the, the teachers versus taxpayer resources. It is the teachers versus the people that they've helped hire. So nobody's there representing, uh, the taxpayers interests. Um, so, and that's part of the argument behind, why should unions be allowed as they they create to a financial incentive in elections that otherwise don't? I, I'll give you an example. And this becomes really obvious um, when we look at some school board elections. Let's look at uh, Louisville. This past election, 2022, Louisville had four seats that were up for re-election. The teachers unions there spent $773,000 on four candidates, plus whatever the candidates raised themselves. They are all incumbents as well um, that they raised that much to do. So, so you, if you want to step it to incumbents, many times you have to at least match them. And well, who's going to dump that kind of money? I mean, if people are not themselves independently wealthy. See, donations come from, and this is part of the problem, donations come from, uh, not donors. They Large donations come from investors. Um, it is very difficult. It is very difficult for a political candidate to pull in donations unless they're willing to, quote unquote, sell their soul. Because if you want to pull in the big money, most of the time you are required 
uh, to sell your soul. You're required to acquiesce to your donors because once again, they're not making donations, they're making investments. And so there's an obvious group, the teachers unions that would make investments into school board races, uh, but there's no obvious group on the other side that'd be willing to make investments uh, to fight against uh, the, the teachers unions. There's nobody with a strictly very obvious financial incentive. Now, clearly school choice has kind of changed that somewhat as it's created groups that have a little bit of a financial interest into going ahead and dumping money into it. But that by itself, put that to the side, there's just not enough. And, and it's sad. It's sad that there's not enough Ta uh, taxpayers who are also political donors in order to elect people that represent them instead, because so many of our taxpayers and voters sit on their hands and don't bother to actually donate. They then cry and complain about how money's running politics. So we've recognized money's running politics, but you're not willing to do anything to get your money to run politics or the money of the people. So that's an issue. So anyways, you have these unions, uh, um, that end up negotiating with themselves. And, and the profit incentive here for them, obviously, is that unions continue to exist and collect dues as long as they represent uh, their people where they're making them more and more money. And so the incentive here is for taxpayers to pay more and more. So that's the inherent issue with some public sector unions. Now, also, uh, understand that public sector unions are not allowed to strike. Uh, they can do things like sick outs, but they're not allowed to do a, supposedly a coordinated type striking type thing. Um, that's part of the why Kentucky hasn't been a huge hotbed of public sector unions, but you see this in other places. And this isn't just also for pr uh, uh, public sector. There are private sector re uh, reductions on people who can actually strike um, at the federal level. For an example, uh, airlines are not their unions are not allowed to actually strike. It's considered too dangerous to the country to allow them to strike. Um, so therefore they're not allowed, this is a private sector, not allowed to strike. So, um, but public sector unions are not allowed to organize strikes. Um, so it used to be that they had associations. So that way they didn't have to worry about uh, claiming any kind of union organization. This was the NEA. But then 120 AFT came along, which is uh, part of the national AFT union, and they've dispelled that. They're full on a union, so no longer can they claim they're an association. Teachers, it is, in fact, a union. So now you got people negotiating with people they've helped hire. Uh, on top of that, it's not like a, a business where there's profits and, you know, you're not negotiating. And sometimes too, in public sector unions, you're not negotiating with people who actually have any control of the budget. And this is what I mean. Take the state level. Any state level public sector unions are, are negotiating their, their pays and their working situations with the executive branch, but the executive branch doesn't set its budget. The legislature does. So legislature makes a budget, then they leave. Now, obviously the executive branch could say, okay, we'll make cuts here. We'll increase your pay here. So on and so forth. But they can't do things like raise their prices. Like we're going, like we see with private sector unions, they don't have any ability. So as you're negotiating out these contracts, you're negotiating with people who have absolutely no control over the actual money itself, how much money they have. And so as these public sectors unions uh, talk about greater pay and things like that, if the legislature isn't appropriating that money at the state level, well, therefore, um, there's going to have to be a reduction of services in order to pay for that. 
Um, because, you know, like I said, they can't exactly decide to take a lower profit percentage or raise their prices like a private sector union could. That's part of the reason why public sector unions are barred from striking. So it makes sense that public sector employees would join unions or associations who just end up spending their dues in politics. That's the only way that they can get a return for their members. That's the only way their members can do anything to strike back against uh, uh, working conditions or pay issues. They could try to elect people who tell them that, well, we'll pay you more. So we've got the case uh, against um, them and, and simply because you have an entity whose entire goal and purpose is to run up costs on the taxpayers and negotiate with people that many times don't make the actual financial decisions. And if, and in that case too, uh, unions are specifically forced to electioneer. Now, if teachers or others want to create a pack and, and stand alone and do this, that's one thing. However, unions enjoy certain other things that a normal PAC wouldn't. And this is what the legislature is trying to address. They get things like contributions or dues directly from people's paychecks. I mean, imagine, I don't know, would say Trump's PAC uh, was able to let people give $25 a paycheck that would then be automatically deducted and then donated to his PAC. And all you had to do is checkmark a little box on your paste, on your paperwork. Well, a lot of people may do that. Um, and then those, you know, uh, uh, HR departments, those, those payroll departments end up being used to facilitate and cut those checks. So how did Senate Bill 7 to stop the teachers unions from being able to collect these dues get ruled unconstitutional by the Franklin Circuit Court? Well, simply put, because it's not doing a blanket ban for all unions by sig by uh, signaling out, um, singling out, sorry, uh, the only only the teachers unions, it left the union free to say that they're being targeted because clearly they are. And the attorney general's defense, the attorney general's office defense was that, well, we classify employees different uh, along hazard and non-hazardous lines and when it comes to benefits and compensation. So therefore, we could target certain groups like non-hazard employee unions, like teachers unions, and then not target hazardous unions like the unions that are typically more inclined to conservatives like the police unions. But the courts weren't having it, though, and... Um, I mean, I guess this kind of deals with an overall point about Republican legislators. You see, this, this current Republican legislature is so worried about making sure they thread the needle to punish their political enemies or accomplish policy goals while not upsetting the groups that they have deemed to be helpful or used to them. Basically, they want to maintain power and they keep trying to make laws that have cutouts or carve outs to give them this power. I mean, that's part of the reason why people are worried about the McConnell law, the law that was passed that dictates that a Republican should replace McConnell. Well, within that law, it says that uh, RPK, Republican Party of Kentucky, gets to select three people for the governor to choose from. And a part of that was due to they wanted to keep and maintain power within the position and maintain power uh, to RPK. They wanted, they wanted the establishment to have the control. And, but that, that bill they're worried is going to be ruled unconstitutional and end up with a Democrat governor. And, and that's part of the reason why is because of the selection process for that Republican instead of having another type. And, and you see the same thing here. They wanted to punish just the teachers unions but now they're getting ruled unconstitutional because they're lacking any kind of principle. Look, I understand the politics of it all. But come on, y'all. 
Stop passing laws with obvious constitutional concerns just because you're worried about if you do, um, well, then you, you just might end up upsetting if you pass a law that doesn't have obvious constitutional concerns you might end up upsetting people who typically uh support you i mean i mean it's just if, if you're gonna say unions dues taxpayer funds can't be used to collect up unions dues because unions end up electioneering then that needs to be a blanket law across the board well coming up uh a pack supporting Cameron has made a rookie campaign mistake. I'll go over that right after this short break. So during this campaign for governor, we've seen Cameron's campaigns and PACs um, that are supporting him being outspent so far nearly 12 to 1 on TV ads. In fact, we just saw uh, some some numbers coming out to do with the campaigns themselves. So how much the Bashir campaign versus the Cameron campaign has actually raise like actual dollar amounts. And uh, what we're seeing is, is that Bashir's campaign itself has raised over 15 million compared to Cameron's 2.8. And so he's getting outspent 12 to one on TV ads. And, and as I've said priorly, you know, Cameron's campaign plans normally involve a big push in the last 30 days and not doing much till then. And I, I don't know if that's a great plan. And also I can understand that, you know, in this case, Cameron's more financially limited, but why is Cameron's campaign financially limited? I mean, it's the most important election of this year on both sides, not just Democrats, but they are Republicans. Why? Well, simply put, because this is a very red state. And what Democrats are finding out is, uh, can Democrats win in red states? And if they can, well, then that gives them more hope for the future. And for the Republicans, it's a good bellwether on how they'll do in a presidential year if a Democrat is able to win in a state like Kentucky that went massively for Trump. Well, that leaves some opportunities for Joe Biden to pick up in the purple states a little bit more if he messages the right way. That's why it's incredibly important. That's why Republicans want to take them down to show that it's a good barometer barometer, sorry, to show that Republicans are alive and well and doing fine. So really Cameron shouldn't be worried about more about getting money. He should be it should be flowing into his campaign well, but for sure for some reason it just looks like that money really isn't coming in very easy. Regardless, we're finally starting to see some hard-hitting attack ads against Bashir. Two have come from the Protect Freedom Pack. Let's take a look at this first ad right here. Ministry. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we were told that we had to stop. It was a tragic time for the church. And Governor Bashir just, he didn't seem to care. He shut down all the churches in Kentucky, leaving our congregations, our communities without any support when they needed it the most. And I know that there's some churches, even in our own community, that never reopened. We need a change in government. And he can't be trusted to govern Kentucky ever again. All right, so there's the ad there. For those of you who didn't see, it was basically a bunch of pastors and churches hearing basically what you what you just heard. Um, you know, so... I think, generally speaking, uh, that's a pretty good ad. You have the pastors pointing out obvious things about churches closing down. I would have liked to see a pastor possibly saying something like, I couldn't believe this was happening here in America, where I thought we had the First Amendment. 
Um, you know, something to really point out that it wasn't just he shut down churches and left open liquor stores. It was that he literally tossed aside the Constitution um, at a time where it was and, and came after churches at a time where, to their point, they were most needed. So that's not a bad ad, but they also dropped at nearly the same time this other ad where they made a truly rookie mistake. Very own business has always been a dream of mine. When everything was shut down, that was taken away from me. Governor Bashir definitely ran Kentucky more like California and New York. Our lockdown order was still going on while other states were, were open. But because of Governor Bashir, Kentucky was at a standstill. He did not help us. I wasn't able to open my barbershop because of Governor Bashir and his mandates. Governor Bashir is not on my side. He's not on the working man's side. He can't be trusted to govern Kentucky. All right, that guy you heard at the end that also started off, that's Corey Copley. I actually know him pretty well. I talked to him for a few hours when I was out in eastern Kentucky a few months ago. Um, he's a pretty good dude. Uh, owns a um, cool shop there. Anyway, so um, that ad there really isn't it's – it's a pretty good ad, but they made a rookie mistake. Now, for some of you, you don't know what that mistake is. But during that ad, especially for those of you listening, because you would have no clue what that mistake is, um, just listening, not seeing the video. But during that ad, they used a shot of Bashir standing with his daughter holding up a mask while she was also wearing a mask at a press conference. Now, of course, this footage was grabbed from one of Bashir's daily pressers about how we should all live in constant fear and threat. But Bashir chose to involve his daughter in his press conference, not these people. Um, you know, Bashir chose to use his daughter as a political, uh, a prop as a, as a, that's what he chose to do. And so a lot of people would look at that and say, well, that doesn't seem so wrong if he doesn't want his daughter shown in political ads and well, he should have never used her as a political prop during a press conference. However, this is where political experience comes into play. You already have a great ad. Why not literally choose any other shot? Like you have this shot of him unmasked in a crowd shaking hands during a BLM protest uh, during COVID while the rest of us in churches had to be closed. Now, the pearl clutchers and the Democrats can distract away from the actual message that Bashir hates the working man, that he didn't respond to emails, unemployment, that he shut down businesses, and, and he just put them out of work. Um, that's the actual message, but instead they can distract away from it. In fact, we've already seen several articles from Bashir reacting to his daughter being used and how it's blah, passes the line and blah, 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 blah. And look... Should you use someone's kids in political ads? Generally, no. But it wasn't like they were attacking the kid. It's just that they were, th the video they used just happened to have the kid in it. And um, it just seems like it's stupid and could have been avoided. I mean, you know, we've been asking, where are some hard-hitting ads? Some ones really get at Bashir. And we had two here. They're not too shabby on their face. I mean, um, they're really not. They came out pretty close together too as well, but then you distract away from them by using the daughter in one of them. It just seems like a lot of unforced errors. I mean, Cameron's going to need some pretty hard-hitting storytelling attack ads and making these kinds of errors when you're being outspent 15 to 1 is not a good choice. It's not looking good. You know, and this is something I learned in my first campaign.
And this is why I say it's a rookie mistake. You don't want to distract away from the meat of your attack. When you're executing an attack ad or attack mailer or whatever, you don't want to distract away from the meat of your attack. Don't give the, the, the opponent the easy thing to pearl clutch over to point to and just throw his hands up. Don't give a thing for his supporters to say, oh, well, they went after his kid or blah, blah, blah. They didn't go after his kid. They used one image, but it's just a stupid mistake. They shouldn't do it because it's just dumb for this reason. But um, because, you know, when you're looking at an attack ad, the goal of an attack ad, a good one, is to force your opponent to defend themselves. If you can get them to acknowledge the issue that was brought up and you get them to defend themselves on the actual issue, that's a good attack ad. Giving them the ability to not have to answer questions about destroying businesses or churches in this case, because he can claim that, well, those ads came from this pack that's going after my kids and it's crossing a line. Well, you're taking away from your goal and your ability. You're giving Bashir a defense that he otherwise wouldn't have. Well, coming up after this, the Herald Leader publishes an article um, titled, COVID is closing Kentucky schools again. Embracing disinformation paralyzes our response. We'll take a look at that article and see what disinformation the writer spreads in this very same article. All right, so we have this opinion article from the Courier Journal. It is titled, COVID is closing Kentucky schools again. Embracing disinformation paralyzes our response. This is an opinion article. Um, that was wrote a few days ago and the underneath, you know, title was opinion. The myth that children don't have to worry about COVID along with other respiratory disease is based on information, misinformation. So his entire thesis, this author's entire thesis, which is Kevin Cavanaugh, is that, um, people saying that kids don't have to worry about COVID is misinformation. And that is a myth. The myth that children don't have to worry about COVID is based on misinformation. That is what he's saying. That is his thesis here. Well, let's see how he backs that up, right? So first he starts off by saying, as Kentucky's fall school year commences, has achieved another first in the nation. First to have two school district closings associated with COVID-19. Politics and action and disinformation seem to paralyze our COVID response and place children and teachers in harm's way. The myth that children do not have to worry about COVID, along with other respiratory diseases, is firmly rooted in our society, planted there by many of our leaders who have based their guidance on misinformation. So let's see how he starts off. So he's claiming that children not having to worry about COVID as long as respiratory disease, children themselves, is clearly misinformation. And so let's see what his first point is, right? Let's see what his first, uh, you know, because he's got a thesis he's trying to prove, this misinformation that kids, in a way, he's saying that kids are at risk from COVID and we should be really worried about that and that we, we're we not doing it right because we're not worried enough about our kids and COVID. Um, and so in order to prove his point, he quotes this. He says, there have been multiple studies. This is his first point. I'm not, I'm not saying this is his first point. This is his first point. This is his best evidence. There have been multiple studies which have found that children readily spread the disease, placing susceptible family members and teachers at grave risk of becoming infected and developing long COVID. Sweden is often... <laughs> long COVID. <laughs> Anyways, Sweden is often used as the poster child for COVID 
minimizers. But during this, the first week in December 2020, last available data, 70% of the public environment, non-healthcare-related COVID-19 outbreaks in Sweden were in preschools, primary, and grammar schools. So his first point is that children readily spread the disease. Well, I thought the thesis was that children are at risk from COVID. And if you're trying to argue that children are at risk for COVID, you shouldn't start off by saying that children are at risk of spreading COVID. Those are two different things. Children being a spread risk versus children being at risk from COVID are two different things. That is misinformation. You are conflating the idea. You're taking children being personally at risk and comparing that to children being able to spread. Well, children being able to spread doesn't mean that children are at risk and the data plays that out. Your misinformation is to claim that children are at risk. Children are not the ones at risk you're saying. What you're really saying is that adults are at risk from COVID and it's being spread by these dirty, nasty kids. And so he goes on to say that primary school teachers were 67% more likely to develop COVID-19 than the average occupation, higher than nurses and doctors. Secondary school teachers were at a 48% higher risk. And, and, and here's the bottom line, okay? There is not many other environments. There is literally not many other environments in the entire world where you have 30 people in a room at desks the size of a school desk. There's only one setting like that. The reason why diseases spread within school, flus, colds, whatever, is simply because you have kids stacked on top of each other. The if you were in any setting where you have people stacked on top of each other, you'll see for, for hours on end, you would also see, obviously, a spread there. More than you'd see with nurses and doctors. So now he moves into what children are actually at risk for, right? Children are also at risk for long-term disabling effects. 12 to 16% of children had long COVID three to six months after an infection. So he's saying, like, look, children are also at risk from COVID. He is saying that COVID, 12 to 16% of kids that get COVID, they, they have just long COVID. They get this thing called long COVID that I know it's hard to nail down how much it exists, but they get it. So 12 to 16% of those who actually get COVID. Okay. So how they say get long COVID three to six months after infection. They also said that COVID-19 in children has almost doubles the risk of developing type one diabetes there's also risk of widespread organ system damage from multi-system inflammatory syndrome. I mean, this data on this is iffy at best. On top of that, too, he's also ignoring what, what things like the COVID shots do for children as well. But anyways... He goes on to say, post-COVID immune dysfunction is probably responsible for the large waves of RSV infections our children are experiencing. So this guy pushing this COVID misinformation is saying like, look, RSV is probably responsible. COVID is probably responsible for RSV. Nah, he's got no studies to point to. Um, 
of course. No studies. But he does somehow make this claim while claiming that we're spreading misinformation. Don't know where he's coming from there. But anyway, so what's he going to say? So what's he want these schools to do? Um, I'm sorry. He also finishes out by saying no one truly knows the extent of the virus's long-term effects. And lately there's been little to good news in this regard. Well, you know, if you find one person that you, whatever, anyways. Um, okay. So what's he want people to do? Um, I'm sorry. I'm limited on what I can and can't say because obviously I've got YouTube and Facebook that I'm on and there's no reason for me to get specifically somehow a strike or something on those platforms. Um, so, you know, it just is what it is, which is why I would encourage everybody, please follow me on podcast forms. Follow me on Spotify, on Apple, on Pandora, iHeart. Just follow me in one of those places because they do not... Um, they don't censor as much on there. And so if something happens to me on Facebook or Twitter, you'll still be able to follow the show. But anyway, so what does he want schools to do? He says, too many schools have unhealthy buildings with outdated HVAC systems. Source control is effective in preventing infections and involves both masking and high-quality ventilation. And there it is. Here he goes. He goes, two-way masking is highly effective, but also politicized. What? What? This guy is telling us that we are spreading misinformation by saying kids are not at extreme risk for COVID, which based upon death statistics is accurate, is now having the audacity to claim in this article calling out COVID misinformation saying masking is highly effective. What is he talking about? Like, there is absolutely, I mean, even CNN is calling out people like Fauci on this. Fauci was on CNN, uh, uh, was it last week or two? And he was basically asked, was said, hey, um, there's been a lot of studies that show COVID did nothing, or not COVID did nothing, that masking did nothing to affect COVID. How do you respond to that? And he said, well, you know, yeah, maybe when you look at the large population, but some on an individual level, though, it did something, which makes no sense. If masking worked to stop the spread of COVID, you would see it at both levels, individual. But he, he even CNN is saying, look, masks really don't work for COVID. But yet, here's this guy claiming misinformation, pushing masking in schools. And I think that is kind of like what kind of drives me crazy a little bit here about people like this um, that claim, oh, well, you're spreading misinformation or things like that. But they themselves are making these claims that are at, not at all based in reality that have long since been debunked. But yet they're able to say that and, and they can look in a mirror and say, oh, yeah, COVID misinformation, that's definitely being spread while not realizing they themselves are spreading, by definition, COVID misinformation. Um, you know, those kinds of things are certainly, certainly shocking. Well, y'all, that's what I've got time for today on the Andrew Kubrater Show. I thank y'all so, so much for joining me. I hope you have a great rest of your day. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 1 o'clock.